Welcome to New Podcast. I'm Todd Raines, Managing Editor for New England Urban Church Planning, and I'm here with Tim Zolker, the Executive Director. Um, and we're going to be talking today about uh, the work that we are doing at New England Urban Church Planning, um, and I'll just jump right into it. So we've often talked about um, the work of plant, church planting in inner-city neighborhoods as missionary work, as uh looking for missionaries, looking for people with a missionary mindset. Mm -hmm. But what does that mean? Yeah, Um, Um, that's a great question. Um, So I I would say it means three things. When when I say that, I I have three things in mind. Um, One of them is that uh, church planning in in an urban context, inner city poor context, is going to involve financial support the way a missionary would think about financial support. So um, let's say uh, right now in the U.S., poverty level is about 23500 I think, for a family. Um, if that's the case, then you're never going to see the people coming to your church fully support the budget of that church. You, you've got to um, plan otherwise. Um, Church people may support the programs of that church, and that's kind of the model that we're thinking through is and, and working on, is we want somebody who comes to faith, somebody that's being discipled, to realize, oh, part of my discipleship, part of my following Christ means giving generously. Yeah. But giving generously out of $23,500 a year for a family of three or four people is going to look very different in terms of even tithing. Um, than it is in a suburban middle-class church. So um, having said that, um, we, we think of the salaries of our church planters um, needing to come from what they raise, perhaps the programs of the church or uh, the expense of the building can be supported by, by giving in the church. Um, uh, I, I remember a friend uh, who moved up, this was this is 20 plus years ago, moved up from the south to uh, plant a church here in Providence, um, Rhode Island, where we are. And um, he was so fruitful in ministry. It was really exciting. He and I would meet every couple of weeks and he'd say, oh, um, so-and-so came to faith and I just baptized these people and so forth. Well, um, but he only had three years of decreasing funding. First year, 100%, second year, whatever, the percentage went down. And then after the third year, that was it. Uh, so his church plant network gave him three years of funding. Well, um, he mortgaged his house, then he mortgaged his house again to try to stay afloat. And then uh, I, I remember the day still, like it was yesterday, he just sat in front of me and he said, uh, Tim, I, we've got to, my wife and I have got to move back, back south. I, I, we just can't do it. Just not sustainable. No, it wasn't sustainable financially. So we don't want to see that happen. And we never say this to missionaries, right? You don't send a missionary to Western China and say, hey, uh, here's three years of decreasing funding. And um, if you're a decent missionary, then you'll plant a church and your people will be supporting your, your, your ministry. And we just don't say that. So that's why we talk about this being missionary-minded uh, church planting. Uh, that's the first reason, at least. So sometimes when we, we think about missions and funding missions, the idea of um, being bivocational comes up. And how do you think about pastors and church plant members um, being or being bi- bivocational? Should they be? Um, is that is that a way to make this sustainable? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I know a lot of brothers who are bivocational. 
Um, let me share another story to get at my answer. Well, no, I'll, I'll just say the answer right up front and then illustrate it with us. So we don't ask our pastors to be bivocational. The work that, that they are doing is um, all the work that any pastor does, and then some, and then a lot, actually. You're, you're, a, a, you're a, a caseworker. You're um, an ambulance driver. You are on 24 hours a day. So in the context of generational poverty, um, even the 24-hour time clock doesn't mean what it means in a middle-class context. And so 2 a.m. or 2 p.m., you're just on. Um, so he, here's the story that came to my mind. Um, a friend of mine who's, who pastored in the inner city um, one early Sunday morning, late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, gets a call from one of the women in his church. Um, the baby daddy involved in that had thrown a brick through the window, uh, trying to get in and get the baby. She was upset. She called my pastor friend. He spent from, you know, 2 to 5 a.m. Um, settling this with the police and so forth. But it's Sunday morning. Right. So uh, what's he going to be doing in four hours? He's going to be heading to church, and he's going to be preaching that morning. That's kind of normal for an inner-city church pastor or church planter. We don't want these guys to be bivocational. You, you, you can't do all of that sustainably over the years and also uh, go to work such and such a place for 25, 30 hours a week. I think it's unsustainable. So we want to allow them to have the flexibility to do that and then maybe spend time at other times when they're have the chance to spend time with their family, take care of their family absolutely, and not need to spend that working their job or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then uh, still speaking of uh, sort of this missionary mindset, um, we also talk about this as being cross-cultural. So if you did not grow up in the inner city, then generational poverty, inner city poverty is a whole different subculture with its own rules. Um, I often recommend, and I've read multiple times, uh, a framework for understanding poverty, um, uh, a fantastic book by Ruby Payne. Um, we don't subscribe to her solutions, um, but we do recognize the wisdom of describing what's happening in generational poverty. By generational poverty, I mean poverty that, uh, yes, has, has lasted for a couple of generations or more, as opposed to situational poverty. So anybody could temporarily find themselves in situational poverty. Um, there's a crisis, there's a, you know, a economic crisis or, a, or some sort of a catastrophe, and, and you may be um, short on money for a stretch. I'm talking about the kind of poverty where you settle into a way of life for a long time and often across multiple generations. So if that's the case, if you did not grow up in that kind of setting, then um, you will find yourself at a loss as to how to survive in this kind of a setting. How do you think about money? How do you think about time? How do you think about the future? Um, uh, it's often said, and, and Ruby Payne will talk about this in the book, um, there is no real future planning if you've lived in a mindset of generational poverty for a long time, 
you're not even thinking really about tomorrow, let alone thinking about how do I get to college in four years? And so uh, how do you do discipleship in this kind of a context? How do you plant a church in this kind of context? One of the churches that we are uh, working on planning right now, in that community, the turnover is about 33% every year in the local public schools. Well, that really shapes about how you think about your church right? and how you think about discipleship. So, um, yeah, uh, all of this is cross-cultural for somebody who hasn't grown up in that context. I'll just add, if you have grown up in that context, that doesn't solve all your problems because if you did, you probably spent, and, and you no longer are living there, um, you probably spent most of your life wanting to get out. And it's not just that you, wow, I don't want to go back there, you're thinking, but that uh, that place, that context may be full of tremendous amount of trauma for you, pain, hardship, memories, triggers that you don't want to put yourself in again. Right. So, yeah, you understand it, but um, it comes with a lot of pain. So those are the first of the two two things. You were going to say something, though, I think. Right. So how does how does having a missionary mindset help either of those? You know, you have someone who maybe is does can understand can relate to that context, uh, or someone who can't. You know, somebody more like you or I. Um, but who? How does the missionary mindset enable? Um, uh, a more healthy or uh, fruitful way of going into that context. So if I, let's say I want to recruit church planters and I go to church planting guys at a seminary, it's their last year, and I say, um, how many of you guys want to come to uh, uh, Dorchester in Boston or inner city Hartford or New Haven or Providence? Um, and here's what it's going to be like. That's uh, that's a hard sell because um, mostly they were thinking of raising their family in a safe environment where the schools are decent and where uh, that church is going to be able to pay their salary and where they can connect, where they feel like it's a fit, right? right? So if, however, I go to the missions department of the same seminary and I say, hey, how many of you guys, uh, uh, well, uh, let me back up. Uh, maybe uh, a good portion of them were thinking of going to another country, uh, a hard place to live. Um, and I say, hey, instead of going to um, northern Brazil or western China, uh, would you consider coming to, New, coming to New England and working in the inner city? That's not as big of a sell because they were already thinking about raising their funds. They were already thinking about cross-cultural. Uh, they were thinking about learning a new language. That, to me, is a much uh, smaller bridge to cross. And um, so that's, I think that's how it helps to some degree. It's a mindset of what this ministry is going to be like. And, and if I already had decided I'm going to need to raise funds for the rest of my life, then uh, that's, uh, that's what we're talking about here. Right, right. So, I, I think it's interesting how the idea of language is, seems to be quite important here and i'm thinking of how um 
it's often said that the stories of a community shape that community, but you could also break that further down and say the language of that community um, is the community or shapes it. It's, it's hyper important. And so like you're saying, the person who is, is expecting to speak to people who they already know the language of has a very different mindset to those who are eager to learn a new language. And technically it may be all English, but if I went to England, there would be a, um, a huge need for me to learn the language, Mm -hmm. even though technically there's a great deal of overlap of the words. Um, and similarly here. Um, so that, that mindset of accommodation of contextualization, Mm -hmm. um, is, is important even for those who, um, you know, maybe, maybe reaching and, and it's not always true, but may do a lot of work in English, but it's different. It's a different community. It's a different language that they have to learn how to speak. Yeah. And, and, um, I totally agree with you. And in addition to that, another layer on that is conversational values. So what are you going for in this conversation? So if there were another six or eight people around the table here, and we are uh, middle-class suburbanites in America, I would argue that our conversational value, by and large, is to support one another and affirm one another in what we're saying. So you and I are talking back and forth, we're looking at each other, and we're nodding, and we're smiling, and we're, yeah, 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 I agree with you. Um, I've heard and um, uh, maybe experienced a little bit uh, in France in that same circle your conversational value is not to affirm one another, but actually to mildly disagree or be disagreeable or, or critical in the, in the technical sense of that word. Mm. In the inner city, uh, again, Ruby Payne brings this out in her book. Um, uh, what she says is a conversational value is neither of those. It's who can entertain the circle the best with the best story. And I have experienced that because I will go talk with friends in the inner city and I will ask my kind of questions which fall dead flat on the ground. And then I feel awkward and I I realize I I am not connecting and I don't know why or I didn't know why for quite a while. And then as I started to learn this a little bit and watch, I would watch the storytellers around the circle tell stories. And so I started to engage not with, well, how was your day? How was your ministry going? How was your family? But uh, jumping in and telling stories. Now, all of a sudden, we're bonding. Everybody's laughing. And, um, and then communication is flowing. So I agree with what you're saying. And, and also, there's that other layer also of just how to interact and how we use language. There's a third piece to uh, having a missionary mindset, and uh, I I think in some ways this gets uh, even deeper into uh, what we're talking about here, and that is um, uh, how a missionary mindset reflects the heart of Christ, and I would say in two ways. The first is Christ's leaving the glory of heaven and coming to earth. Um, We talk about this as incarnational, and we use that sometimes in um, missionary language. I'm not referring to that exactly at the moment, but I do help. I, I do think this helps us understand this idea of fit, uh, which I mentioned earlier. In other words, someone may come uh, and, and 
talk to us and consider the idea of planting in the inner city and then reject the idea by saying, well, it's just not a good fit for me. It's not a good fit for my family. This isn't the context that I understand or I'm comfortable with. And my response is Christ did not fit uh, the earth. Hmm. Um, I'm not denying his humanity. I'm not going there. Um, But I am saying that Philippians 2, 6, and 7 show us a Savior who was doing something that was not a natural fit. When it says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So I I think, I mean, I, I I would add this also. If we only went where we fit, the book of Acts would not exist. Uh, we would have had no modern missionary movement. Peter didn't fit with the Gentiles. No. When he was dining with them. No. And he didn't know what he was doing. No, exactly. Um, Adoniram Judson did not fit in Burma, uh, and, and so forth and so on. It was this willingness to cross over uh, Christ being the one who supremely did that and showed the way for us to do that, um, that really, I think, even gets more deeply at the heart of what it means to be a missionary church planter. And very closely related to that is the second thing that I would say, that is, uh, missionary work is is sacrificial. Um, is all ministry sacrificial? Yes. Is Christian life sacrificial? Yes. Uh, and I'm also not saying that we ask our missionary church planters um, to live on as little as possible. Our philosophy here is not maximum work for minimal pay. Um, we want to support our uh, pastors and, and their families and our church plant team members um, sustainably in a healthy ministry for as long as they're serving. Nevertheless, there is sacrifice when you are leaving a place that fits and learning a different culture, and raising funds, and, and, and frankly, being in a place that may just not even feel safe uh, for you. There, uh, I, I think that's a deep reflection of the heart of Christ um, who came to us sacrificially. I, I think we can also see part of the hope if we look at the life, the kind of trajectory of Christ. He was... he who was rich became poor, but he didn't actually lose his riches. He, um, he became poor. He took on, um, this, um, likeness of, uh, men, this likeness of a servant for our sake. And yet, um, part of the way he was able to do that was because he could trust that what was his was always going to be his with the father. So, he didn't need to grapple over his equality with God. He didn't need to defend his fullness. He was able to let go of it at some level um, and take it back up um, and yet more, with more glory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so much more glory for what he had done. And so I guess we can also hope as we, um, as we sacrifice, as um, those, you know, church planters take on this sacrificial role, um, and and it, only in a slightly different mode than all Christians do, um, we can hope for uh, this 
overwhelmingly more weighty uh, abundance in the future, um, this weightier glory um, that, you know, otherwise this isn't worth doing. But with that, it is worth doing. It's worth giving up something now. Um, but that's not the end of the story. There's more. Um, there's more goodness and joy and fullness and security um, that will be ours. And that allows us to, in the short term, give something up. Um, and I think that's that's something that should be operative for every Christian. Um, even the, uh, I, I think that's the same mentality that allows people to give and to support the work of missionaries and it's the same mentality that allows a missionary to do their work. Um, it's this mind of Christ. Let's talk about uh, some of the specific ways that we're addressing the financial support piece. So it's, it's um, good to talk about this theoretically, but how is it that we are equipping uh, church planters and team members to be supported? Um, so there are a number of ways uh, we're doing that. One is... Um, well, through prayer partners, um, asking somebody to support you in prayer is not um, a soft entryway into then asking them for financial support. It is a significant part of the process. It's only an appeal to the all-powerful yes. God who is making uh, all things new. Yes, absolutely. Um we, uh, with each of our um, uh, team members, we ask them to go through support raising solutions training. SRS um, is uh, an international ministry that trains missionaries going to all sorts of places in how to do support raising. Um, we uh, require all of our people to participate in their three-day training. At this point, some of it's virtual, a lot of it's in-person, different places around the U.S., uh, in English and in Spanish. Uh, we think what they're doing is really good and, and helpful, so we require that. We provide in-house coaching uh, and ongoing support for, for uh, support raising. We ask uh, seven churches to come around each of the churches that we plant also. And in fact, we call it our Seven Sisters Church Partnership uh, program. So for every inner city church, seven churches that engage with them financially at whatever level they choose, personally through um, making some sort of personal contact with them uh, once a year, two-way prayer, uh, not just one-way prayer, just not the, the wealthier church praying for the poor church that has all these needs as if they don't have needs, uh, two-way uh, prayer. We also are, uh, and have launched recently, um, uh, a funding campaign, a uh, $2 million funding campaign called Christ for the Neighborhood. And um, through that, we're seeking um, donors who will come alongside the ministry and particularly provide a runway here in the first few years to help us plant the first four churches to hire additional uh, support team uh, staff members here in Rhode Island as we train everybody else. And so uh, we trust that that will be fruitful, and um, uh, that'll be that is part of um, what we do. And then uh, sometimes I talk about um, the fundraising snorkel. Um, That's not a phrase I've heard before. Uh, well, I, I'm not. I think I made it up. 
Um, so there are many generous supporters in New England, but New England is a small place. Um, and so uh, I often think of the need to stick a snorkel up out of New England and uh, breathe some of the air uh, from the rest of the country. And so deeply grateful for those that are here that do support us, deeply grateful for those who are in other parts of the country who look to New England and say, yeah, um, that seems like a spiritually needy place. We understand uh, that you guys need help from elsewhere. And so um, very, very grateful for generous help from other churches and other individuals all around the country. So in those ways, uh, what did I just list? Six or seven ways um, of providing for the financial needs of church planters and the churches. So I want to go back to this idea of context and ask more specifically what you are doing um, and talk about what we're doing to train church planters and church plant team members, workers, as they prepare to enter a ministry context that's very different from, from their own experience. Hmm. Yeah, the first um, is immersion. Um, so getting right into the community, listening, serving, watching. Um, we probably, many of us have experienced some immersion kind of uh, situation we have found ourselves in. You get into the community, you learn things you can't learn on paper. You know, I've referred to a couple good books, but... Um, there's nothing like a week in some foreign place for you to really start to figure it out when you're there and you have to um, learn firsthand. Census numbers, for example, can be really different in a community than the reality. Um, and you can't learn that without being there. Um, once you realize, oh, in this urban inner city context, um, most of the people that are not there legally are not reporting themselves. And uh, so the census data actually doesn't reflect what's happening on the streets, which is going to possibly reshape how you think about your church. So you can only learn a lot of these things by immersion, and that's going to be by far the best way to do it. However, um, we need the wisdom of other people, and... So we informally here at New, uh, informally and, and formally, partner with others who have experience that our church planners need. Um, for example, one of those uh, partners is Acts 29's um, Church in Hard Places initiative. Guys like Tyler St. Clair in Detroit, a friend of our ministry, um, they have a lot of experience pastoring on the street and a lot of experience training others. And so we get our guys into training opportunities and cohorts that offer them the wisdom of the wise. Um, Grimke Seminary in Richmond, Virginia is uh, a partner with New Church Planting. They're providing theologically, biblically rich education to pastors that's informed by those who understand the inner city context. Doug Logan, in starting Grimke, really had guys like this in mind uh, from the ground up. Uh, I think of our friend uh, Jacob Young. He's a pastor in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, inner city uh, context. I looked at Jacob for wisdom about inner city church planning, and I introduce other guys of ours to him. He, he just he oozes wisdom. I love talking to Jacob. Um, so uh, immersion, yes, the wisdom of others. And there is a place to study and read. Um, if you're going to be on a church plant team in an African-American inner city neighborhood, you better study up on uh, the black Hebrew Israelite movement. 
Uh, I have a friend, uh, Kenan Parker in Fort Worth, Texas, is dealing with this all the time in his neighborhood, uh, in his church, and he's given a lot of thought to the movement. Um, uh, other reading, um, Urban Ministry uh, by Con and Ortiz is a must read for the inner city church planter. Um, so are Church in Hard Places and On the Block. So is When Helping Hurts. So is Mez McConnell's latest book, which I have and have not read yet, but I, it, it's going to be a, um, an important read, The Least, The Last, and The Lost. And most of all, uh, speaking of immersion, immersing yourself in the Word of God while having one eye on the context of the inner city. How does this relate? How do we think theologically robustly about power issues in the inner city? How do we think theologically robustly about immigration issues or violence or fatherlessness? Um, so, yeah, immersion, the wisdom of others, studying and reading, um, praying, praying for wisdom. But these are all part of what, uh, for us, go into contextualized training. And you can't get this overnight. Um, you can't get it on your own. And so our aim is to support that theologically and biblically robust contextualized training. A lot up front and then ongoing for years. So last question here um, about, about planting churches in poor urban neighborhoods. And that is there are often many churches in these neighborhoods. Why do we seek to plant more churches? I think the first thing to say here is that planting in the inner city must be approached very carefully with humility, gentleness. Uh, by carefully, I mean that we should not say to others, we shouldn't even be thinking this, your ministry isn't valued, so we need to be here. Uh, we want to come with a spirit of adding, not subtracting, adding to others. Churches that may not even be preaching the gospel are most likely helping the neighborhood, um, perhaps in a way that a nonprofit might be helping the neighborhood. That is valuable. Um, it's probably full of relationships and um, full of respect in the, in the community. Which leads me to, second, to the second thing, um, we do evaluate whether there are gospel-preaching churches in the community. So there's a tension here. Um, so that leads me to the second thing. We, we do evaluate whether there are gospel-preaching churches in the community and how many and what the saturation of those churches is. We do not want to plant a church across the street from, down the street from a church that's preaching the gospel. Um, there... That church is already there. We want to be supportive and helpful. I'll interject this. Um, when, when you talk about uh, the scope of a church in um, communities, I'm thinking mostly suburban communities where everything is drivable, mm. um, and that even changes from one suburb to another. It's different in New England than it is in Dallas, Texas, for right. example. A uh, half-hour, 45-minute drive in Dallas is not a big deal. Eh, that's a big deal if you live here in Rhode Island. But as you move into the inner city, now you're talking about walking distances. 
You can't say to somebody in the inner city, hey, we've got a great church to recommend to you. It's just two miles down the road. Well, okay, but we don't have a car, and the bus line doesn't go that way. And um, in February in New England, you're not going to be walking that two miles. You just aren't. So you want to be planning neighborhood churches that are walkable distance. So that plays into this question of saturation and is there a church that's preaching the gospel within the scope of this concentration of people that we care about, wherever it is. Um, so here is the key. Um, Paul preached the cross of Christ, and, and it's the power of God for salvation to preach Christ crucified, to know nothing else. That's the power of God for salvation. So the question is, where is their hope for eternal life? And uh, I, I mentioned this earlier, so often um, one of the themes that gets addressed in, inner, in the inner city and in communities of poverty is this issue of power. And this is a, this is a very important issue. This is worth another podcast discussion with uh, a, a number of friends probably around the table. But um, let me just say it briefly here. Um, Communities marked by poverty feel as though they've been on the underside for a long time. And so it feels as though, well, the solution is we need to switch places. So how do we get ourselves on top and how do we put others down? Um, Speaking of uh, my my friend in in Fort Worth, Texas, we talked about this. and, And even the black Hebrew Israelite movement in some senses is saying, Oh, you have felt powerless all these years, but actually, in reality, here's your status, and so you are in a different position, and so it's a it's a it's a way to shift um, those who hold power. This is not God's solution. The cross is the solution to this issue of power. Uh, Paul shows this um, in the first three chapters. This is really clear in the first three chapters of Romans, right? So um, he starts by looking at the Gentiles and saying. Look at these Gentiles. They are, they're the scum of the earth. They, they don't know the law. They don't follow the law. They don't keep kosher. They don't, they don't do anything worthwhile. They're just moral dogs. And then he turns to his Jewish brethren and says, ah, you too. And he levels both of them uh, before the law and before, ultimately, before the cross. And... Um, uh, when, when we ask our friend Mez McConnell, working in the 20 schemes, uh, in, in 20 schemes in, in Scotland, you say, where do you start planting? Where do you, where do you start when you're planting a church? His answer often will be by, by uh, teaching the book of Romans, which is a little bit of a shock, you know, to anybody that's been thinking about, how, well, how do you care for uh, the inner city poor? Teach the book of Romans. But this is what he has in mind, among other things, is recognizing that it's only the word of God, the preaching of the cross, that is going to actually transform hearts. And so those who are, those who are rich need to see that they are spiritually poor. This is one way to apply the first three chapters of Romans. Those that are rich need to see that they are spiritually poor. Those who are poor need to see that they are spiritually poor. Um, uh, both need to cry out to God for the grace of Christ who became... And you said this earlier, who became poor for them so that they might become rich only in Christ. There is no power swap, human, human-centered power swapping that's going to fix anything uh, in the inner city. 
So the question then, all the way back to your initial question, why plant churches where there might be other church buildings, even Christian churches um, in the inner city, the question is, is this being preached? This, this is what motivates me deeply. Is this what's being preached? And where it's not, it must be, because this alone glorifies Christ. And, and to be honest, in um, inner city urban syncretism, there's a lot of bad theology. There, there just is. Um, you can see it driving around our neighborhoods right here. Um, one of them, I can't remember exactly the wording, is um, everybody is born with a guardian angel. Pray to your angel to protect you every day. That's bad theology. Um, it's, not only, it's not just bad theology and it's irksome in that way. It, it misplaces or it displaces uh, the cross of Christ as our only hope. So this is what motivates us in, in planting in the inner city, and this is what helps us evaluate whether there ought to be a church in this particular neighborhood or not. And as I'm, I'm thinking about what you're saying, we, we would also say that if you, if you drive around in the suburbs, you would also see marks of incredibly bad theology, right? So that, that cuts to both, mm -hmm. but what's different about the urban context are the funds, right? Oh, yes. So we would say there's, there's lots of, like, there's lots of bad theology. There's, you know, it's apparent just how syncretistic, you know, easy middle-class Christianity mm -hmm. is with all sorts of different things. Um, and so that's maybe common, but there aren't the resources to, mm -hmm. um, to support those who would preach the gospel clearly and truthfully yeah. um, to those who would hear in these neighborhoods, which really um, means there's something that um, new church planning can help with. Yes. Um, and, and, and so it's not, um, it's not that there's worse theology there. There's, mm -hmm. it's really, it's the difficulty of, planting these churches and keeping them um, and keeping them sustainable and alive and supporting these planters and their families and enabling them to day in and day out preach the gospel yes. um, in this context. Yes, you're absolutely right because in, in a suburban context where there is more funding and there are more churches, you can at least escape the, the bad urban syncretistic theology and go find a church if you want to. Um, and circling all the way back to where we started, there just aren't many um, gospel-preaching, cross-centered churches in these inner-city communities. And there's room for so many more. And there's room for so many more. Yeah.